Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds, it's Teo again. Welcome back to the Cardio Nerds Cardiovascular Genomics Series. In this fascinating discussion, student Dr. Hirsch Alhens and Drs. Jesse Holtzman and Alaa Diab learn about next frontiers in clinical genetics within the exciting field of cardiovascular prevention from Dr. Pradeep Natarajan. They discuss polygenic risk scores and pharmacogenomics in our quest for precision medicine. For an in-depth review, Please check out the AHA Scientific Statement about Polygenic Risk Scores, senior authored by Dr. Natarajan, and linked in the episode notes. We're proud to collaborate with all stakeholders in our work to democratize cardiovascular education. This episode was developed in collaboration with the American Society of Preventive Cardiology and supported with unrestricted educational sponsorship from Illumina Inc. As always, all CardioNerds content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by the CardioNerds team. If you enjoy the show, support our mission and help others find us by rating and reviewing us on your preferred podcast app. Now let's dive right in and get nerdy. Hi, Cardio Nerds. Welcome back to another episode in our series on cardiovascular genetics. This is Jesse Holtzman, Chief Resident at UCSF and Cardio Nerds Academy Chief for Pau Eindhoven. We are so excited to spill the genes. Oh, sorry, I mean spill the beans on the role of polygenic risk scores in cardiovascular prevention. In this episode, we will cover the difference between monogenetic testing and polygenic risk scores, the clinical utility for polygenic risk scores, and the role of pharmacogenomics in cardiovascular prevention. For today's discussion, I'm joined by Dr. Ala Diab, stellar internal medicine resident at Greater Baltimore Medical Center, public health student at Johns Hopkins University and Cardio Nerds Academy fellow and future chief, as well as student Dr. Hirsch Elhens, star medical student at University of Southern California in Los Angeles and Cardio Nerds Academy intern who will introduce our expert discussant today. Thank you, Jesse, and hello to all the cardio nerds tuning in. It is my honor to introduce Dr. Pradeep Natarajan. Dr. Natarajan is the Director of Preventive Cardiology and the Paul and Phyllis Fireman Endowed Chair in Vascular Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital, Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, and an Associate Member of the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT. Dr. Natarajan uses germline and somatic genetic variation to uncover new biology and enable enhanced clinical care for cardiovascular disease. He leads several large research efforts to use genetic epidemiology and large-scale sequencing studies to better understand cardiovascular disease in the context of prevention. In addition, he was a senior author on the recent AHA scientific statement on polygenic risk scores for cardiovascular disease. Thank you so much for the really kind introduction and for inviting me. I've been looking forward to this. This should be fun and engaging. This is an exciting area of research, but is now spanning the clinical translation. Part of that was what motivated us to put together that AHA scientific statement. And I think it's a really nice opportunity to educate the broader community just about some of the basic terminology and the considerations, particularly that went into this and then things on the horizon of incorporating genetics into clinical care. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Natarajan. We are so excited to hear about what lies on the horizons for cardiovascular genetics. So let's cover some basics before we dive into the case. As the burden of cardiovascular disease increases in the United States, the importance of enhanced screening tools, early risk prediction, and prevention strategies grows. For common diseases like coronary artery disease, 
rare mutations may confer a several-fold increased risk of disease. For instance, in familial hypercholesterolemia, a single rare mutation may confer as much as a threefold increase in the risk of coronary artery disease. However, for most common diseases, the overall cumulative impact of several common genetic variants may be greater than a monogenetic trait. So, Dr. Madarajan, to go back to the basics, what is the difference between monogenic and polygenic inheritance patterns, and why is it important for cardiologists and clinicians to understand the difference? Great. That's a wonderful introduction to the topic. And I'll take an even further step back because, as you highlighted, Jesse, the epidemiology is staggering and troublesome. You know, cardiovascular disease retains the dubious distinction of being the lead contributor to death in the U.S. Over the last two decades has actually been the major contributor to premature deaths among adults across the world. Now, there have been a lot of advances in cardiovascular disease prevention and policy really over the last 50 to 70 years. And if you go back to the curves of cardiovascular disease deaths, there is a plateau, but the trend has not reversed. And so it retains this number one dubious distinction with cancer as a close second. And the way that we've been practicing preventive cardiology has been relatively similar, really, for the last 30 or so years since contemporary prevention guidelines, which are largely based on risk estimation, based on the same risk factors that we've known about from the Framingham Heart Study and others from the 1960s and 1970s. So it's really important to now leverage the many new data streams and new capabilities of profiling individuals to try to better understand what are some of the additional contributors to risk. Now, one of the contributors that has been well-described since the mid-1900s with substantial scientific contributions in the 1970s and 1980s is a monogenic driver of coronary artery disease, and that's familial hypercholesterolemia. In general, monogenic conditions are conditions that there is a genetic variant that disrupts the coding portion of the gene. Generally, these genetic variants are pretty rare in the population. But that in itself is sufficient to substantially increase the likelihood of a condition. And for familial hypercholesterolemia, about 90% of those genetic variants are happening within the LDL receptor gene itself. Now, the LDL receptor is a cell surface receptor. It sits on the surface of a liver cell. It's responsible for the clearance of LDL particles from circulation and then recycling the cholesterol and other lipid-related particles, either into other lipoproteins and within those particles or often out as bile and into the stool. Now, if the LDL receptors are dysfunctional, one, LDL particles are staying in circulation and the liver itself, it thinks that there is actually not much LDL cholesterol around because the LDL receptors are not internalizing the LDL particles. So then the liver goes on overdrive and it starts overproducing cholesterol. And so you get into this vicious cycle and so from that single mutation alone, these patients can have substantially elevated LDL cholesterol and more importantly, a very high increased risk for premature myocardial infarction. Now, some of the seminal contributions in the 1970s, particularly from Dr. Brown and Dr. Goldstein at UT Southwestern, was the description of the molecular basis of familial hypercholesterolemia. And that was a very important insight in the broad insight of LDL cholesterol being a causal factor for cardiovascular disease. Now, the prevalence of LDL receptor genetic variants and sometimes genetic variants that are in the ApoB gene and PCSK9 gene, those are still pretty uncommon in the population. It's about one in 300 individuals will have this. 
It's common for most monogenic conditions. However, we just talked about the epidemiology of cardiovascular disease. It's very common. It often happens in younger individuals. And when it happens in younger individuals, you all probably see from your patients, but it often happens in their family members as well. And when it happens in those family members, it's often in younger family members. Sometimes it's because everybody who's affected has elevated lipids, but most of the time it's because of otherwise unknown factors. But there is some sense that there may be a heritable component. There are classic papers from now about 20 years ago from the Framingham Heart Study that looked at family history as an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease, something that we take for granted today. But when quantified at that time, premature cardiovascular disease event conferred about a 1.7 to 1.9 fold independent increased risk for cardiovascular disease in that individual. The risk was only there if it was premature in the parent. And then that's adjusted for the traditional risk factors like LDL cholesterol. It's very similar for a sibling risk. It's about a 1.6 fold. So those observations and similar studies motivated the look for other genetic mechanisms for cardiovascular disease. And so for many years, we've just said it happens in younger individuals, kind of granny trade that may have some connection to a monogenic condition, but we don't obviously know the genetic architecture and it's not well explained by other acquired risk factors. We kind of say it's polygenic, meaning multiple different genes are involved. No single mutation or variant in that gene is going to break the gene, and that alone substantially increases the likelihood of the condition. But rather, there are many different genes that are responsible for a trait like coronary artery disease, and genetic variants that are common individually may influence those genes. Those may in turn each influence risk for cardiovascular disease. And then the accumulation of those risk alleles may then lead to risk for coronary artery disease. And up until recently, we did not have the tools to really quantify that or to estimate that. Thank you for highlighting that important distinction. Genome-wide association studies, also known as GWAT, have identified many single nucleotide variants throughout the genome that are associated with cardiometabolic disease. Though each variant may individually carry a small risk of disease, together they can account for substantial cardiovascular risk. Dr. Natarajan. What is a polygenic risk score, and how are these single nucleotide variants combined to create polygenic risk scores? It's a great question. So why don't we take another step back and just talk about genetic association studies or genome-wide association studies, because that is the necessary training that is required to derive such a polygenic risk score. And increasingly, these kinds of studies are in the more general medical or cardiovascular literature, so important to understand. Basic principle is that we are broadly profiling the genome. What's an interesting observation is that most of the genetic variation that is common among humans tends to be highly correlated. So instead of spending a lot of money to enumerate each of the individual genetic variants of the single individual, one can sample just a small subset of those genetic variants and actually capture most of the genetic variation across a human population. And really, you only need about one to two million genetic variants. And that is compared to the human genome, which is about 3 billion individual nucleotides. Okay, so one can take that technology, and this is the same thing that direct-to-consumer testing companies use, and then go to large populations of individuals where you know some have coronary artery disease and some don't. And all you do is across those 1 to 2 million, we systematically compare the allele frequencies between cases and controls. And depending on the difference and power, which is a function of the number of cases that you have, overall sample size, 
the prevalence of that allele and its true effect, you ultimately can ascribe statistical significance to it. And today, there are about a few hundred different regions of the genome that have been significantly associated with coronary artery disease. The majority of them actually do not also associate with traditional cardiovascular disease risk factors. And so it is challenging to unpack why those are influencing coronary artery disease, but it really highlights that we have a lot to learn. A power of doing these analyses, unlike the traditional biomarker analyses that many of us also do, is that these features are present from birth through death, and they are static features. So we don't have many of the concerns of confounding when describing genotype-phenotype association analyses. It's a very powerful tool for us to make causal inferences. So we use this to try to understand and prioritize therapeutic targets, make causal inferences about biomarkers, and things like that. Now, another application of genetic association studies as we're talking about today, is polygenic risk scores or risk prediction. Now, without even understanding the mechanisms of all of those alleles, one can take that information in totality and then look at individuals who are similarly profiled to try to estimate risk. Polygenic risk scores in their simplistic fashion would be taking, for example, each of these 300 regions and taking the top risk allele and then simply saying, for my patient sitting in front of me, how many of those 300 variants, how many of those risk alleles that they have, assuming for most of these sites, it's either one or the other. And if they have lots of them, they will have a higher polygenic risk. More contemporary methods will weight each of those alleles based on their effect estimates from genome-wide association studies, which is basically the relative difference in allele frequency between cases and controls. And then use additional statistical procedures to also incorporate genetic variants. They don't have as strong statistical significance. The motivation is, as you get larger and larger genetic association studies, many of those become significant. So these are tools to kind of use that information without yet having an infinitely large genome-wide association study. These now are up in the range of a few million genetic variants. And so we basically have a list of alleles a list of their effects, how much we think they each individually increase risk for coronary artery disease, and then can genotype individuals for the same alleles and then calculate their risk and then actually provide a number. There are some important considerations as it relates to genetic ancestry, because these scores do perform differently by ancestry, largely based on the training data that they were derived. Much of the initial investment for genotyping have been in largely Eurocentric populations, so they perform maximally in individuals of European ancestry. But over the last decade, there have been substantial efforts in genetically profiling non-European individuals as well, too. But that's the basic gist. Great. Thank you so much. So to summarize, polygenic risk scores are the weighted sum of the risk conferred by multiple single nucleotide variants for a specific disease process. And this is in contrast to some of the monogenic risk variants that we talked about, like mutations in the LDL receptor, apolipoprotein B, or PCSK9, that individually confer significant risk for a disease process like coronary artery disease. Something that I'm curious about is we talked about how the human genome has 3 billion base pairs, but we're looking at on the order of 1 to 2 million nucleotide variants. This is a ton of data. So how is all of this large-scale genetic data collected and stored? The data is increasingly complex and it's increasingly dense. So the technologies I talked about, the genome-wide association studies, these are largely based on pre-selected variants on arrays. 
now we're increasingly using whole genome sequencing where we can enumerate the difference of each of these 3 billion genetic variants and then simultaneously try to identify Mendelian drivers or monogenic drivers of disease as well too. And the data for a given individual substantially increases in complexity. And we have not even talked about the other downstream molecular features that we are now able to profile at scale, like transcriptomics, RNA, proteomics, protein, and metabolomics, metabolites. How all of these will be used together for an individual patient has yet to be determined. Most of molecular data that is generated at massive scale has been genomics. And as I said, the number of individuals also has substantially increased. And so really the advances in genomics have been facilitated by in parallel advances in computation. So a lot of this is both on-premises, massive servers, supercomputers, and then now increasingly, which has democratized the ability to do this kind of large-scale genetic analysis, is cloud-based computing. And that has really leveled the playing field. How all of this information is then going to get back in to the clinic is less clear. At minimum, and what makes it less daunting, is then using the derived features that are important for the clinic. So getting a reporting yes or no, whether somebody has an LDL receptor mutation, that's pretty straightforward. That's like any lab entry. Externally calculating polygenic risk scores and then putting it back into the medical record and putting that single number, that's pretty straightforward. That's just what you would do for any different biomarker. What is pretty interesting and not yet a solved problem is that the genotypes are stable. So that information is there, but our knowledge of those genotypes are continually evolving. There is no single guideline-supported score for coronary artery disease. You know, many different scores. It's a lot of correlation, but they perform differently in different populations, and a lot of it is based on training data, where they're coming from. But that single genome for an individual, you can calculate a polygenic score for anything. And our ability also just improves based on our knowledge of the genetic architecture of that. So that that based data is static, but our interpretation of that base data continues to evolve. So how do you create a kind of at least unidirectional path where as data is updated, then representing the derived data and something that is clinically meaningful back to the clinician is really important. These are important things that we think about. And this is kind of like on the horizon for how you could potentially realize genetics. And it's really challenging to even model cost effectiveness because this is a singular feature that could have relevance to pretty much any outcome. Its relative contribution will depend on basically what we know about it as well. So it's a good question, very complex question, and hopefully an answer that makes somewhat sense. It's incredible to hear about the lockstep improvements, both in cardiovascular genetics, as well as in computational abilities. I think it's really interesting to think about how all of this data will ultimately be incorporated into clinical practice. But before we get to a clinical case, as you had mentioned earlier, many of the large early genome-wide association studies were performed in individuals of European descent. You had mentioned that there have been efforts over the past few decades to incorporate more diverse populations into training data sets for polygenic risk scores. How is that diversity of gender and ancestry reflected in the available data used to create polygenic risk scores now? And what efforts are underway to increase the diversity of participants in these studies? Yeah, it's a good tie back into this, uh, this really important issue. Now, it's not uncommon for biomarkers to have different distributions by race, ethnicity, and ancestry. And it's not uncommon for biomarkers to also have a different in their performance 
by race, ethnicity, and ancestry. And there are many such out there actually that still have been best studied among individuals of European ancestry and less in non-European. What is important, especially as we embark on these new biomarkers that may have wide-ranging impacts, is that we can, before implementation, really better tackle some of the things that might be driving these differences. An important driver of this difference are systematic biases and basically where research has historically been invested. Many of the NIH and NHLVI-funded cohorts and other non-NIH-funded were highly phenotype cohorts that were ascertained in the mid to later 20th century. There are many more cohorts that have come about really over the last two decades that have focused in non-European individuals. And also comparatively in Europe, infrastructure was greater for understanding the epidemiology of cardiovascular disease among European individuals. And so it made sense when investing and now newer profiling to go to cohorts where there's relatively high fidelity phenotypic information. And so as a byproduct of that, we relatively know the genetic architecture of most traits to a much greater degree in Europeans. And so if you just take the totality of data that we have today of genotypes and phenotypes together, and you create polygenic risk scores for many different things, on average for everything, you will find more superior performance in Europeans. And that doesn't necessarily mean that heritability for these traits or the contribution to these traits from DNA sequence variation is much greater in Europeans. Most of it is that we just know more information. The training data is superior in Europeans. There's been kind of two approaches to address this in bigger terms. One is methods developed. There's a lot of data there. It'll take a lot of time and resources to generate more data. But can we use the existing data and new statistical methods to boost the performance in non-Europeans? There's actually an important large NIH consortium that I'm one of the leaders of from the Human Genetics Research Institute, the NHGRI, one of the institutes of NIH, to try to bring in other cohorts that have been genotyped or about to be genotyped, and then leverage the information from Europeans and non-Europeans, and then use new methods using a lot of the ongoing parallel efforts of interpreting the functional significance of genetic variants in the genome to try to boost performance. And a lot of that is promising. I don't know that that's going to get us to the equal parity that we hope, but it definitely bridges an important gap. And to be honest, an important gap that many other biomarkers have not sustained. The other, and it's become increasingly clearer, is that you just have to study these individuals. You have to go out and recruit individuals of non-European ancestry. And creating new cohorts is a lot of time, a lot of effort, and a lot of money. However, we recognize the current systemic biases in healthcare currently And the ability to curtail some of that by improving at least how genomic medicine could be implemented initially. And so there has been substantial investment federally at the U.S. and in Europe, and then increasingly so actually in Asia as well, too, from local national governments um, and a variety of other entities. Interestingly, we and many others have realized that there is substantial value in profiling non-Europeans for many reasons beyond just the implementation of risk scores. A hallmark example is PCSK9 inhibitors. The story of PCSK9 is really the poster child of using human genetics for new therapeutics. And so about 20 years ago now, 
that when people were studying familial hypercholesterolemia and only knew about LDL receptor mutations, group in France got a bunch of patients and families that had familial hypercholesterolemia phenotypically, but didn't have LDL receptor genetic variants. They ultimately, using older technologies, prioritized a gene that no one really knew anything about at the time was PCSK9. Further work suggested that these were gain-of-function mutations. So, of course, went to the hypothesis that those gain-of-function mutations in PCSK9 led to increased LDL and loss-of-function mutations would lead to lower LDL cholesterol. Now, it turns out only genetically profiling African-Americans, this is in the ERIC study, was also led at UT Southwestern by Helen Hobbs and Jonathan Cohen, turns out about 1% of African-Americans happen to have loss-of-function mutations in PCSK9. And these are exceedingly rare in other populations. However, strategic investment and genetic profiling African-Americans detected that. That was like 2005, 2006. 2015, we had the first PCSK9 monoclonal antibody on the market. That sort of dovetails with the power of using human genetics and therapeutic prioritization. So because of that, and then we've done actually a lot of work in South Asians, particularly in Pakistan, and discovering new drug targets. There has been substantial investment from the pharmaceutical and biotech industry in the profiling of non-Europeans. And so there has been, you know, substantial acceleration of this over the last five to 10 years. The federal effort at the U.S. is called the All of Us program. This was President Obama's precision medicine initiative. This is like the Framingham study of this millennium that aims to get about a million individuals more adequately representative of the U.S. So there is a lot that's going on. And I'm encouraged by the progress and these efforts, at least based on research studies that we've done, suggest that they are really helping. Wow, it's great to hear about the substantial efforts to improve the performance of risk scores in individuals of non-European descent through both statistical methods and enrollment of more diverse populations. Dr. Natarajan, I was hoping to tell you about a case that I saw last week at the Cardionerics Prevention Clinic. Our patient, Jeannie Was, is a 41-year-old woman with a history of class 2 obesity, prediabetes with an A1C of 6.1%, and hypothyroidism, who presents to discuss ways to prevent her long-term health. Her mother has type 2 diabetes and had a stroke at age 63, while her father had a myocardial infarction at age 52. Her most recent lipid profile was notable for total cholesterol of 189, LDL of 112, HDL 55, triglycerides of 125. Her blood pressure today is 132 over 79. Overall, she has been feeling well, but is hoping to discuss ways to prevent the development of heart disease down the line. In addition to routine lifestyle modification counseling, including weight management recommendations, how might you use a polygenic risk score for Ms. Jeannie Was to assess her risk of cardiovascular disease? And in clinical practice, are there commercially available tests being currently used? Good question. Good to bring it back to a patient. We think that much of the value for this kind of genetic test will be in younger individuals, 20s, 30s, 40s. This is an interesting case because I definitely would not discount the lifestyle modification. In fact, most of that initial visit will probably focus on lifestyle modification. There's a lot of high-risk features. So 41-year-old is not particularly old. We'll come back to that age part as it relates to current risk prediction, which is class 2 obesity, prediabetes, and ordering stage 1 hypertension, assuming that the systolic remains greater than 130. Now, if you plugged in her numbers into our current guideline-supported clinical risk scoring, 
she will have less than 1% tenure risk. And that is because age is the principal determinant of tenure risk. Actually, it's really hard to be better than age as a risk predictor. There's actually a pretty good argument of just using age alone because the other risk factors don't change that much. That's a clinical challenge, particularly for younger individuals. So identifying the individuals that you want to invest early in, we simply don't have the tools. Now, if you put her number on the website for risk calculator, they also give a lifetime risk estimate that is pretty high of 27%. And that's because she has an accumulation of these high risk features. The absence of those features bring her down to 8%. And that is why I would not discount for this particular patient, the lifestyle modification, because I think it will play an important role. The interesting thing of the prediabetes in her and the diabetes in her mom, and also sustaining a premature cerebrovascular event, also makes you wonder about the heritable basis of diabetes in her family and whether you'd want to treat that as a risk factor even more aggressively than lifestyle modification. As I said, one can use the exact same genome-wide information to calculate the risk scores for anything. And indeed, there are polygenic risk scores for type 2 diabetes as well that also perform very well. What is interesting about diabetes is that at least in many of the training data sets, there are a lot of different features that get at various different molecular aspects of diabetes. And in comparison, there's been a lot of profiling of those alleles to get at different pathophysiologies that you can capture from type 2 diabetes-associated alleles that may actually influence how you would manage that patient. Now, that needs to better be demonstrated prospectively, but actually, I have been much more impressed and excited about those methods for diabetes polygenic risk scores. Before talking about separate heart disease risk, type 2 diabetes polygenic risk score may be something that we're thinking about in this patient, particularly if there's some challenges in lifestyle modification to address the hemoglobin A1C and the obesity. Now, there is the Note of for the father also having a premature event. And for, for the father's myocardial infarction at age 52, would be interesting to see what the risk factors were for her father. And if it was similar risk factors that she has now, or the absence of risk factors. And the absence of risk factors would say maybe there is some other yet unphenotype risk for her that may put her at risk, just as it did for her father, particularly if he had otherwise clinically unrecognized risk before he had his myocardial infarction at the age of 52. This may be when one is starting to think about polygenic risk scores. We are using the family history to try to interpret the utility of genetic testing, but there are two important points. One is that the polygenic risk scores, at least as it relates to heart disease, polygenic risk scores and family history are additive features. They are correlated. Generally, people who have a family history of heart disease, particularly premature heart disease, tend to have higher polygenic risk scores. But there are many individuals who don't report a family history of heart disease, but individually have a high future risk for cardiovascular disease. And a lot of that is because we understand a lot about the risk factors of heart disease. Many people are placed on stats and are attuned to their risk. So the family history is a very coarse barometer of heritable risk. And then number two, there are actually a lot of disparities in the interpretation of family history. We've done actually a lot of work on this, that there are a variety of sociodemographic factors that predict who knows their family history. And that family history alone should not be the gatekeeper for whether you should do or do not do genetic testing. Okay, so that aside, so one thing that we have here is the lipids. Obviously, we take that for granted, and that's for risk prediction. And folks may or may not know that there is a recommendation to do screening lipids in the 20s. And that's largely to find severe hypercholesterolemia. 
And that alone is sufficient to recommend a stat beyond lifestyle modification. Now, she doesn't have that, but she has some point undergone screening lipids. Now, what is particularly interesting about a polygenic risk score is that there are many properties of a polygenic risk score that are similar to LDL cholesterol, meaning also continuous biomarker, both associate with future risk for cardiovascular disease, severe hypercholesterolemia and LDL cholesterol greater than 190. That's about 2% in the population, maybe 1% in the population. And those individuals we bought into the notion of putting them on statins. That makes a lot of sense. A lot of the initial statin randomized control trials, in general, the average LDL cholesterol was 190. Those people benefit from statins. And then in general, if their cholesterol is very abnormal and you treat that in good data to support that it's a causal factor, you'll substantially influence cardiovascular disease risk. Now, for a polygenic risk score, the risk that the top fifth percentile of the score, so that's one in 20 individuals, they actually have a similar relative risk as somebody who has severe hypercholesterolemia and relatively severe, similar as familial hypercholesterolemia. So more individuals actually not detected by the LDL cholesterol at all. They have modest increase in LDL cholesterol, modest as in like four or five milligrams per deciliter. So not perceptible just based on the lipids themselves. So those individuals have a similar risk model. What is also pretty neat and then very surprising because no one really expected this, is if you go to a handful of these completed stat clinical trials that have been broadly genotyped and then just calculate polygenic scores and then do exploratory subgroup analyses like anyone would do a subgroup analysis after a completed clinical trial. Now, the individuals with high polygenic risk score benefit more from a stat. And the surprise is from a couple different reasons. So this is getting a little bit into the weeds of preventive cardiology, but we prescribe statins for individuals who have more risk factors because their risk goes up, their baseline risk goes up. But in general, based on all those clinical risk factors, the relative risk reduction from a stat is the same. It's about 20, 25% relative risk reduction for about 40 milligrams per deciliter lowering in stat. And that's the same regardless of those risk factors. However, the absolute risk reduction gets magnified just if you have more risk factors, right? The relative risk reduction is the same. And so the number needed to treat becomes smaller just because they have more risk factors. What is pretty interesting about a polygenic risk score, which has actually not been described for another factor, is that the absolute risk goes up because it's an independent and additive risk factor. However, the relative risk reduction is magnified. With that same 40 milligram per deciliter lowering of LDL cholesterol, it's about a 40 to 44% relative risk reduction for cardiovascular disease events. Now, we observed that in three statin clinical trials. And just a couple of years ago, actually, it was reported in both of the PCSK9 monoclonal antibody trials, suggesting that this is an important strategy, LDL cholesterol lowering, to prevent future events for patients with high polygenic risk. In the end, our patients are interested in risk, but in the end, they want to know if you prescribe a therapy, are they more likely to benefit? And the pool cohort equations gives us some sense of that really just by giving us absent risk. However, this is unique. In addition to increasing risk, the number needed to treat further shrinks because of that difference in the relative risk reduction. And so one can reliably say, based on this feature, your likelihood of benefiting from a stat would increase. And this is a really important concept because in preventive cardiology and shared decision-making, it's kind of synthesizing and capturing risk in a way that makes sense, but in a way that is sort of more clinically relevant. Because in the end, we're just not prognosticians. We do a lot of work in trying to identify things that heighten risk. 
But we do that for the purposes of changing management. And ideally, the management that you recommend in the clinical prognosis improves based on that management. And so we hope to move away from a pure risk prediction to really therapeutic prediction. And that's hard to do because you can't really do that only with observational data sets. There's a lot of confounding, confounding by indication. You can't just do it based on how medicines were prescribed. One has to go within the randomized controlled trials. And the trialists and the pharmaceutical industry, they recognize that there is substantial value in understanding these things. And so now, pretty much as part of the consent for any randomized controlled trial these days, cardiovascular disease, there is a parallel consent for genetic analyses as well. And so this is just scratching the surface because there to date haven't been as many. And so I think we'll better understand how to understand treatment based on genetic risk factors in the future. And then the last part of the question was, are there commercially available tests that are available in clinical practice? So this is a little complicated. This is part of the motivation for doing this scientific statement because it is increasingly coming into the clinic through non-conventional means. Basically, two principal non-conventional means. One is direct-to-consumer genetic testing. As I said, it's all the same technology that is used. Increasingly so, this information is displayed back. So far, a polygenic risk score through a direct-to-consumer testing company that is basically ordered by a patient and paid for by a patient is not FDA clear. There are actually some genetic tests and genetic information that are provided back from direct-to-consumer testing companies almost exclusively at this point, 23andMe, that are FDA-cleared, some on the pharmacogenomic side and some on the carrier side, meaning that if that test was returned back, there is no need to separately perform a physician-ordered test, and that is suitable and reliable for FDA. The other is that increasingly to understand the clinical utility of these polygenic risk scores, many of this information is being returned back to patients because biobanks that are part of healthcare systems like ours, Mass General Brigham and others, are increasingly growing in massive size and then doing prospective research. And so researchers like me and others are returning polygenic risk scores back to research participants. We're providing some guidance, but in the end, those patients are coming back to their doctors and saying, hey, this is what I've been told. How do I interpret this? So really just based on those two things, those were important for us to better synthesize the data that's out there and really highlight what are the potential opportunities for that. You know, I've been talking about means of getting back this information that are not necessarily clinical tests. However, in most biobanks that are doing these return of results polygenic risk scores, there is usually some local laboratory-derived test that is clinically appropriate that they can return that information. And then actually also part of the All of Us National Biobank, polygenic risk scores are being returned. And that is also being done and has been collected in a clinical appropriate manner for clinical testing and is being returned as a clinical test. So that is sufficient to use. They're partnering with a company called Color Genomics. Now, these companies like Color, there's a couple others, they're all developing laboratory-derived tests that physicians can order. Many of these testing companies have been a little bit delayed because of COVID, but there was one actually that was recently announced is that company, not a U.S.-based company called Alilica, and they have partnered with a U.S.-based diagnostics company called Boston Heart Diagnostics, based in Massachusetts, but they do a lot of advanced lipid testing and others. But through them, one can actually order as a physician a clinically appropriate polygenic risk score. And so many patients, when they are getting this information, particularly through direct-to-consumer testing, 
that is the next appropriate step such that you're using a clinically appropriate test. And I mentioned these names, you know, I have no endorsement or financial relationship with these companies and there will be others. And I'm sure there are others that I'm not aware of, but because it's a little bit early, importantly to recognize what is the authorization that they have, what is their approach, what are they citing, just because it's early days. And the reporting is also important too. What does the report look like? So if you ask me this question in a year, I think there will actually be more options than there are today, but it's rapidly evolving. Thank you so much for that incredible summary of the landscape of cardiovascular genetics currently. I think it's really interesting to think about the fact that patients are interested in risk prediction, but ultimately they often want to know, will they benefit from a specific therapy? It makes a lot of sense to think about how do we synthesize and capture risk in a way that makes sense to patients? And therefore, how do we move forward with risk prediction and therapeutic prediction? And I love the point that you brought up as well about direct-to-consumer testing and physician-ordered testing and what that reporting looks like to patients. I think a lot of this work is ultimately boiling down to how do we report the findings of these tests to our patients in a way that's clinically meaningful, both for physicians as well as for patients themselves. I'm so curious as to, on a day-to-day basis in your own clinic, Dr. Natarajan, how do you incorporate polygenic risk scores and what are scenarios where you're actually ordering these on a day-to-day basis? Yeah. So the one scenario we touched upon was in younger individuals. And there is no prospective study to suggest that that is how we should be using it comparatively to lipids. A lot of this is based on just thinking about why we use it in lipids. Now, the question is whether a prospective randomized control trial needs to be done. And I think whether because people generally don't do primary prevention randomized controlled trials. They're expensive. They require a lot of individuals because relative to individuals who have coronary artery disease, those who don't have lower event rates. And so you need just many, many more individuals. It is a significantly larger market. However, it's a significantly larger investment. However, I think as our therapeutic hypotheses are refined and our ability to phenotype individuals for those is easier and cheaper, and then also there are all these biobanks and direct-to-consumer testing data sets, I think it's increasingly feasible. And there are actually efforts to do these prospective randomized control trials, largely in the UK, partnership between the NHS and other companies. Even if you just look at the pooled cohort equations that we use that's in our guideline, you know, there's been no randomized control trial that suggests that that's what we do. It makes sense. It's based on secondary analyses of randomized control trial data and others. And you mentioned risk enhancers. There's no randomized control trial that says that we need to use that. So I think as we think about harmonization, if we're able to harmonize based on evidence that we use for other things, that seems responsible. However, if we are invoking new therapeutic paradigms and also new therapeutics, obviously, then we need to do these randomized controlled trials. And it's a mix of inferring efficacy as well as safety. So we're talking about polygenic risk scores for coronary artery disease. We talked about diabetes, but you could also do this for AFIT. There are actually very good AFIT polygenic risk scores me and others have developed. However, somebody that has high polygenic risk for AFIT but doesn't have AFIT probably would not recommend a blood thinner because they're maybe efficacious. However, for somebody who doesn't have AFib, they're at higher risk ultimately for getting AFib based on high polygenic risk, but there's a lot of people who don't, and they'll put a lot of risk, a lot of people at risk for bleeding. For CAD polygenic risk scores, we're largely at this point talking about stats, but there are other more expensive medicines and then the side effect or the downside is cost. And then you'd have to think maybe for something like that, you have to do a prospective randomized controlled trial. 
in the end, especially with younger patients, it's a complex conversation because if you're recommending preventive pharmacotherapies, it largely becomes a lifelong medicine. And people have to have confidence in your interpretation of the literature and their interpretation and your synthesis of the literature as it applies to that. Because if they never had an event, either you made the spot on recommendation or what you recommended didn't work because they weren't going to have an event at all in the end. So again, as Jesse, as you said, a lot of this is how do you communicate the information? How do you convince yourself and then align also with the patient's motivations as well? And I think if one draws parallels to how we're treating patients today, I think that is very reasonable and responsible. But again, part of this is the sheer decision making. So again, we touched upon this younger folks, but as you mentioned the word risk enhancer, this is kind of the scope for using novel biomarkers in the clinic that upclassify risk beyond traditional risk factors. As I said, age is like, this is the best for predicting 10-year risk. And if you look at the performance of each of the individual risk factors on how they improve prognosis beyond age, it's pretty trivial. It's pretty small. However, each of those individual risk factors we recognize as causal factors individually. And then if you address those causal factors, you'll also be able to address the attributable risk for each of those risk factors. But what that means is that it's actually really hard for even new biomarkers to outperform this as well. At best, they'll be at best as those risk factors. So because statins are cheap, because they're safe, we allow for a pretty large denominator of people who are eligible. That's 10-year risk of basically borderline risk and above. As we said, the younger individuals, very, very hard to get to borderline risk. But once you're solidly in middle age, these scores are pretty reasonable and they largely by design overestimate risk. So they create a larger pool. What changed between 2013, the prior iteration of these cholesterol guidelines in 2018, was better incorporation of shared decision-making through the incorporation of this new term, risk-enhancing factors or risk-enhancers. These are additional factors that have been shown to associate with an increased risk for cardiovascular disease by about one and a half to twofold. And these are novel biomarkers like LP little a. These are not novel history factors like family history, APOB, if it's there, and ADIs. Just saying that if there is an accumulation of these additional factors that upclassify risk, we're not providing numbers to them, but that might help support for that individual shared decision-making. I recall very vividly in 2018 when that sort of new paradigm was announced and just trying to understand what is the bar to make it on that list. And it basically is that, the 1.5 to twofold. And then it's also something that is obtainable. It's not some esoteric thing that's out there. So polygenic risk scores, if you look at individuals who are in the top 20th percentile, that's one in five, they have a fold risk of about 1.5 to twofold, identical to the other risk-enhancing factors. And as we talked about, it's not so much an esoteric test to have. So we recently, recently as in a couple of years ago, looked at a few geographically distinct biobanks of individuals where you start to think about using risk-enhancing factors, this sort of borderline to intermediate risk range. We looked at ours at Mass General Brigham, N and BioMe, and they're all actually pretty ancestrally different. Our biobank's about 85% European ancestry. At Penn, it's about 50% African ancestry. And at BioMe, that's Mount Sinai's biobank. That's about 70 plus percent of Hispanic ethnicity. And all of those actually distinct 
biobanks, the polygenic score performed pretty similarly. Despite experts at these tertiary, quaternary academic medical centers, it was an obvious risk signal that was there. A lot of patients who are between borderline intermediate risk are obviously already getting stat prescriptions. But if we looked at the numbers in total, those who are among people who don't have cardiovascular disease, who are borderline intermediate risk, not on a statin, and have a polygenic risk score in the top 20th percentile, similar risk characteristics of other risk-enhancing factors, in totality, that represented about 4% of primary prevention patients for whom, if you had this information, you would newly recommend a stat because they're not already on it within that yet. So I think there is scope for it there within that paradigm as well. So these are the current approaches. And then, as I said, we have many other interesting hypotheses. I'm thinking about other new bets that are out there, and that's going to require more work. But in my mind, this is not science fiction. And, you know, it's a rapidly evolving field. Thank you so much for that really incredible clinically relevant discussion. It sounds like our patient, Ms. Jeannie Wass, is going to get the finest care thanks to your expert consultation. I want to wrap up by coming back to something we had previously mentioned about the role of cardiovascular genetics in therapeutic prediction. Anyway, it sounds like we're still early on in understanding the full range of clinical implications of these polygenic risk scores. And we talked about how when thinking about risk, it's important to weigh the efficacy versus potential harm versus logistical barriers. And then, of course, also equity associated with implementation of these scores. But how does this genetic variation influence management? Specifically, one area that we haven't touched upon yet is pharmacogenomics. And for all the cardio nerds out there, what is pharmacogenomics and what are examples of how we implement pharmacogenomics in the field of cardiology? So great segue into pharmacogenomics. And this is where the genetics is broadly used. So pharmacogenomics is basically using genetics to influence the pharmacology to optimize efficacy and optimize safety, decrease risk of side effects. And these studies historically have been really hard to do because most clinical trials are not broadly genotyped. One, people actually don't want to have consents or genetic studies because it's an additional question and some patients may not want it. And so they may actually opt out of a trial. So it decreases the efficiency of a clinical trial. So historically, people just don't ask. And then it costs money, you know, it costs money to isolate DNA and then do genetic analyses as well, too. And then the third part, which is kind of important consideration is that when clinical trials are reported and are positive, most companies are there to make their shareholders happy. They're not interested in slicing and dicing who would benefit more from their therapy. So there have been a lot of challenges practically in just advancing that aspect. And the clinical trials compared to our large-scale discovery trials, pretty small. The average cardiovascular clinical trial, at least for coronary artery disease and heart failure as well, about 5,000, maybe upwards of 10,000. Okay. And then a pharmacogenomics analysis is instead of just looking at the systemic allele differences between who got events and didn't get events, is to see if that allele frequency difference is magnified for those who have the therapeutic versus those who don't have the therapeutic. So even across that number, because it's basically an interaction analysis, the power is pretty modest. So it's really hard to identify clinically meaningful large effect variants. Like when people have done this for statins, there has only been one reliable genetic variant. And that's compared to like I, one of the leads of the largest lipids genetics consortium in the world. We had a paper of 1.6 million 
And there are hundreds of genetic regions that are associated. We're able to come up with pretty well-performing polygenic risk scores for lipids. But if you have just one genetic variant that predicts that effect, it's really hard to come up with a polygenic risk score for statin response. Undoubtedly, there is a polygenic mechanism. It's just that we don't have the training data to do that. That aside, actually, that one variant, one can actually go through multiple different entities to get genotype. And some of the direct-to-consumer testing companies have it. However, in general, these common variants in isolation don't have very good predictive capabilities. And so I worry about their use for patients where statins are indicated and they have this very, very modest effect. Individual common variants that affect risk are basically 1.1 to 1.2 full risk max generally. So that's pretty small relative risk. So that shouldn't be used to withhold statin. What is that interaction that we saw with coronary artery disease polygenic disorder? That is a pharmacogenomic response that was not trained based on a randomized controlled trial. That was kind of a surprising finding. However, motivated based on that, we are developing and implementing new methods based on population-based data and then training based on randomized controlled trial data. In general, for many therapies with statins and PCSK9 monothelial antibodies as the exception, if you develop predictive models in one randomized controlled trial, ideally you have another where you can validate that finding. So one, that OPIT isn't done. And number two, if it is done, it's done by a you know, different group of people and different manufacturers. So logistically, it's really hard to do this. But I think people have seen the value and the evolving paradigms that will see more of this. Some of the earliest examples of coronary artery disease pharmacogenomics was led based on just what we anticipate based on pharmacology and drug metabolism. This comes from analyses of clopidogrel, where clopidogrel, as you all know, is a prodrug, meaning it's inactive, and then it gets activated through a variety of enzymes. CYP2C19 is the most important for the activation of clopidogrel to its active metabolite. And focused analyses of CYP2C19 found that there was actually alleles within those clinical trials that predicted adverse outcomes among patients who were getting clopidogrel and who were otherwise getting stents or MIs, lending to the hypothesis that these could be important pharmacogenomic alleles. And the effects were pretty large because this is a key feature to whether clopidogrel would work in you. And it turns out there are two pretty common genetic variants that are in C2C19. Common as in the allele frequency is about 20% in non-Asians. And then among East and South Asians, it's about 40%. And these are people who are the intermediate metabolizers because they have loss of function mutations in C2C19. The poor metabolizers is about 2% in non-Asians and about 10% Asians. And people have tried to do prospective randomized control trials of tailoring P2Y12 inhibitors based on the presence of one or two alleles, being heterozygous or homozygous. For among patients who are largely ACS patients, generally those who are getting PCI. And in general, what they have found is that the times that Tecagrelor or Prasugrel are superior to Clopidogrel is almost only in the instance where somebody actually has a loss of function mutation in CYP2C19. And when there is no loss of function mutation in CYP2C19 among those patients, clopidogrel performs pretty similar to ticagrelor and prasugrel. Now, surprisingly, 
interestingly, there is no difference in bleeding between the two. I think that is where it would be much more compelling if you showed that there was optimization based on efficacy and then also in bleeding, because that is often the consideration these days between clopidogrel versus non-clopidogrel P2Y12 inhibitors. But, you know, the trials are not super big, even when they pool data together. So there could be some power assessments. And even though Ticagrelor and Prasagrelor are generic. They're not free. I mean, all of you guys who are on the wards are still doing prior authorizations for those as well, too. So increasingly, people are thinking about it. It's a little bit odd because there has been an FDA black box warning for about 10 years on clopidogrel based on if one has a CYP2C19 loss of function mutation. But there has never been a strong professional cardiovascular society guideline that has said we should be genotyping for CYP2C19 alleles. I think Sky had something last year that had a 2BU recommendation that said to consider genotyping, or if you're considering the prospect of de-escalation, then consider CYP2C19 genotyping to see if clopidogrel is appropriate. So I think this is something that we should be thinking about more. I probably even more compelled if it would help distinguish bleeding risk, because that is often the consideration between the two. But a lot of it right now is provider heterogeneity. But this is just one such example. But this is where it's pretty powerful, where you can see differences in a therapeutic effect by genotype and the importance of correspondingly then doing the prospective trials, which have been done after the initial observations and the initial TIMI trials of these P2Y12 inhibitors. And so we hope, based on this kind of paradigm of single alleles or these two alleles, to do something more with polygenic risk scores. And that, I think, will happen over the next few years. Dr. Netarajan, wow, thank you. This has been phenomenal. We cannot thank you enough for joining us today to discuss the cutting edge of cardiovascular genetics and polygenic risk scores. We've covered a lot of ground today, including the difference between monogenic versus polygenic inheritance patterns, how polygenic risk scores are created, the clinical utility of polygenic risk scores, and potential utility of pharmacogenomics. What a worldwide tour. Before we wrap it up, Dr. Natharajan, what makes your heart flutter about cardiovascular prevention? So I am really interested in trying to identify the features that one can recommend specific medicines based on those features. That's not a new concept in prevention. As I said, we do that for high blood pressure, high blood cholesterol, and high blood glucose and smoking. But the paradigms beyond that have not changed for like half a century. Polygenic risk score, there is some suggestion that based on that, maybe there's a better response to cholesterol. Nobody has really looked in the other trials and maybe there are other ways or maybe there are different subsets of polygenic risk scores and combinations of scores that can better identify these new sort of pharmacogenomic scores where we're not exclusively tied to risk prediction. Again, same thing that we've done for 50, 70 years. We haven't covered any of this and this is entirely another session is that we've discovered pretty exciting new genomic models of aging. Acquired mutations related to age is well-described cancer model. And over the last five years, we've described that it actually is a really important contributor to age-associated cardiovascular disease. And the mechanisms are related to key pathways and inflammation. And we've done analyses in humans and mice, and then looked also in anti-inflammatory randomized controlled trials for cardiovascular disease. And these are therapies that are not currently out in the clinic. But this is an example where you have a molecular feature. This is not common among middle-aged adults. It's like one to two percent. However, you would identify those individuals and then treat them with a therapy that you would not consider in any other context. 
And genetics is not going to be the only feature that we identify these things for. But as there have been substantial advances in just characterizing inter-individual variation, the molecular level, and also how we interface in the world, I'm really excited and optimistic about what we're going to be able to do over the next 10 years. Dr. Natarajan, thank you so much for sharing your excitement about cardiovascular genetics with us and for simplifying what can otherwise be a somewhat intimidating topic. We can't wait to learn more from you in the coming years about the forefronts of cardiovascular genetics. Thanks so much, everyone, and we'll see you next time, Cardio Nerd. Thank you.